This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. Good evening. Uh, my name is uh, Kiyuk Shin. I am director of the Schoenstein uh, Asia Pacific uh, Research Center uh, here at Stanford. On behalf of our center, I'd like to welcome all of you to this, uh, this special uh, event uh, this evening. Uh, this is a special edition of Asian uh, Leaders Forum. I'm going to say a little bit later why it's a special edition. But uh, the Asian Leaders Forum is designed to uh, invite uh, senior and prominent uh, leaders uh, from Asia to talk about uh, key issues affecting uh, the Asian region. And this evening, we are calling it as a special edition because uh, one of our speakers, uh, Mr. President, is coming from Peru. And I don't think Peru is an Asian country, but certainly it's an Asian Pacific country. So from now on, we are going to call, we're going to change the name of the cities into Asia Pacific uh, Leaders Forum, thanks to, thanks to you today. And obviously, uh, at the center, uh, we have many events and programs, and I hope that uh, you will come to join uh, other events. Uh, one of them I want to mention is that on May 29th, uh, we have an uh, Oxenberg lecture uh, by Professor uh, Michael Lampton. He will be speaking on China's, China's power and what it means for America. And especially, I want to thank uh, Mr. Walter Schoenstein uh, for his continued uh, support uh, for our center and our program. So thanks again uh, for your presence and your support. Okay, before uh, introducing our uh, moderator, uh, let me say that this event is being recorded, uh, both audio and video. So during Q&A, if you have any question, please wait uh, for microphone so that uh, you can uh, speak uh, to that. Okay, so it's my uh, great pleasure to uh, introduce uh, my colleague, uh, Ambassador Michael Amokost. And I don't think he needs a long introduction, but he has a distinguished uh, career as American policymaker uh, for Asia, having served in the Philippines and Japan uh, as our ambassador. Now he's serving as our ambassador for the center. So he's now uh, Schorenstein, uh, distinguished in a fellow uh, at the Shurinsen Center. So, please. Thank you, Georg. It's a pleasure to be here and to welcome you to this program. Uh, by now, you know there's an election going on in the United States. It seems to be a permanent condition. The quest for the nomination is already at least two years old. Some months to go, it seems, uh, listening to Mrs. Clinton. <clears throat> and when the nominees have been selected, then we'll have a spirited general election campaign. Many uh, tire of the excesses, at least, of the candidates and the campaign spending, and especially the media. And yet, uh, the presidential election is a grand event in our country and in any democracy. It's the means by which we ultimately hold our leaders accountable. It's the method we use to bring new blood and fresh ideas into government. It's the way we as voters register our preference for continuity in policy or a revision or even a, 
radical change. And for those who love politics, it's a great spectacle and great sport. This year's uh, contest, I think, is a particularly interesting one. And no one on the tickets has previous experience in national office, although Mrs. Clinton certainly has a kind of transcendent view you acquire from living in the White House. It's the first election in nearly half a century in which the winner will surely be a sitting senator. Jack Kennedy was the last. None of the candidates possess much executive experience, but they all, I think, are recognized as uh, very capable leaders of whom the country could be proud. Judging from the polls, it'll be a very competitive uh, event. Certainly the level of voter interest <clears throat> is very high and lots of new voters have been brought into the process, a source of satisfaction, I think, to everybody. You can't travel outside the country, of course, without being struck by the high level of interest in this particular election, probably general to all elections, but this time in particular. I spent some time in Jakarta in January, and it was perfectly clear that not only there was there high interest, but there was preference for a particular candidate to Mr. Obama, having spent a few years in Indonesia in his youth, it was presumed by uh, most of the locals, at least, that he would have a special empathy uh, for the concerns and the interests of Indonesia. On the same trip, I stopped for a few days in South Korea, <clears throat> and it was striking how attentive they were, not only to the election itself, but the way in which the dynamics of the election were affecting the prospects for ratifying a bilateral free trade agreement that, uh, whose negotiation has been completed. I'm confident one would witness comparable evidence of keen interest anywhere in the world. And that's only natural. People are interested in knowing who will be directing the 800-pound gorilla in Washington that occasionally intrudes into others' affairs for good or ill. For some, take the Israelis, for example, our elections constitute a great opportunity. Both parties have great respect for and support for Israel. And therefore, an election is a chance to consolidate a relationship that's already strong and to exact uh, some tangible benefits to boot. When I served in Japan in the late 80s and early 90s, I noticed that uh, officials were not so keen when our elections uh, came around. And when Japan was mentioned by the candidates, they found this a source of apprehension because it was usually in the context of tough talk on trade accompanied by at least occasional threats of sanctions. So their main objective was to lie low during those campaigns and hope for the best. Since our future <clears throat> depends on uh, uh, managing our own equities abroad, it's important that we listen to what foreigners have to say about our candidates and about uh, the outcome of our elections. They don't pay so much attention to the domestic issues which constitute much of our preoccupation, but they're deeply interested naturally in the character of those who seek the Oval Office, their attitudes toward particular uh, foreign countries and causes they hold dear, most especially their conception of America's proper role in the world and what that implies for the future of their relations with our country. Therefore, uh, we thought it useful to spend a little time today listening to what the foreigners expect and hope for as a result of our election. Uh, they don't have a vote in November, but uh, their voices are important, and it's equally important that we pay attention to them. We're especially fortunate today in having two very knowledgeable and experienced foreign leaders to address the subject, what does the world want from the next U.S. election. Dr. Alejandro Toledo is democratically elected president of Peru, from July 2001 until July 2006. 
He was also the first democratically elected Peruvian president of indigenous descent. He was uh, raised in extreme poverty in a remote uh, area of the Peruvian Andes. He first appeared on the international political scene in 1996 when he formed and led a broad democratic coalition in the streets of Peru to bring down the autocratic government of uh, Alberto Fujimori. This coalition had broad support from the international democratic community. Before becoming president, uh, Dr. Toledo worked for the World Bank, for the Inter-American Development Bank, for the United Nations. In the academic world, he's been a visiting scholar and research associate at Harvard University, Waseda University in Tokyo. He's currently an economics professor at Asan University in Peru. He received, uh, we're happy to say, his PhD from uh, Stanford in economics. We welcome him. Our second speaker will be Dr. Kantati Supamungchong, who served as Thailand's 39th foreign minister and concurrently as the trade representative of the equivalent of our uh, USTR. Uh, Dr. Kantati was twice elected as a member of the Thai House of Representatives. He's also served as foreign affairs advisor to the prime minister of Thailand, as well as foreign affairs advisor to the president of the Thai parliament. During his diplomatic career, he represented Thailand at the United Nations for four years. He has served as chairman of the Human Security Network. He is currently University of California Regents Professor at UCLA, as well as senior fellow at the Berkeley Center at UCLA. We welcome these uh, two distinguished gentlemen. We'll ask Dr. Toledo to speak first, 15, 20 minutes, on his perspective as to what the world expects from our election. We'll ask uh, then Dr. Cantati to address the same subject, and we'll have a little conversation among ourselves. Dr. Toledo. I hope this is not going to be as tough as a Don Rather interview with Ambassador. <laughs> I promise. First of all, let me thank once again Dr. Shin and the Center for Asia Center. And to uh, now my friend uh, Shonatan Ford put in so much effort and promoted this effort to shrink the world and to get to know a little bit each other under the premises that we have a mutual respect for our cultural diversities. Secondly, I don't know who was, who was the inventor of the title of this talk this afternoon, but I find it extremely intelligent and provo provocative. If the world will have to vote, what would expect from a US president? I think it's uh, extraordinary. However, that assumes the premises that the world, who would vote in theory, will have a common interest. And secondly, the globalization will somewhat put us in a one objective 
search of what the world will look like for the future. However, from our perspective, what does a Peruvian have to do with an Asia-centered studies? And it has a lot. Asia Pacific. And it has to do a lot because we have been able to shrink the distance between Asia and Latin America. And we have technology was been able to shrink the Atlantic. Peru, Mexico, and Chile are members of the APEC, the Asian Pacific. 21 head of states or members. A group of people that accumulate 62% of the world economy. And that represents 47% of the world trade. So that's important. And we meet, we have been meeting every year in a different place of the world. So we, we met with President Bush, with President Putin, uh, with the President of China, President, uh, the Prime Minister of Thailand, and other people. And we trade, we invest. Third point is, I hope that the next President of the United States, with all due respect, and with the license that we can say what we think because we don't have to commit, we don't put in risk our visa <laughs> because we don't vote, at least I don't. I would like to see a U.S. president who has a vision of the world where the Global warming reduction is a priority, if I will have to vote. I'd like to see that my friends from the United States will have the wisdom to demand and vote for a president that is concerned with the issue of clean water in the world. I'd like to see, as a foreigner, a U.S. president that is concerned with technology transfer that will help to reduce the gap between those who have and have not. I'd like to see my friends from the United States to vote for someone who is truly concerned with an old issue that demands a new and more creative thinking, poverty reduction in the world, poverty reduction in the world. I'd like to see a president <coughs> from the United States that promotes democracy in a concrete sense beyond the political speech. 
I just came from Kiev, from this world movement on democracy. A democracy that delivers concrete results in each individual country of the world and in the United States. That is not just a political democracy that circumscribes to the date in which you have to go and vote in an election day, but a democracy that provides clean water, quality of health care, quality of education, rural electricity, and that it puts some meat and bones to political democracy. I'd like to see a president of the United States to be elected in November who looks at the world with a mutual respect in which the, the power should not be the predominant element to make unilateral decisions with all due respect. <clears throat> They have taught me in this country that in order to attract capital investment, we need to have political, economic, social, legal stability, legal stability, clear rules of the game to provide stability to attract capital investment without medium and long term. With the same perspective, we need to have some clear rules of the game that are stable and that are respected in the world. I'd like to see a, a president that is not pulled his attention only to one part of the world or two or three parts of the world that are put there because of an accident, because of something happened. I'd like to see a president that can anticipate the emergency of problems in the world. You will never be able to predict 100% what's <laughs> going to happen. I'd like to see a president of the United States that respects the small country, a big country. I'd like to see a United States president that puts a human face to globalization. And in, and in that process, it does it under the premises that globalization that does, does not mean to erase our cultural identity. Let me conclude <coughs> by saying that I'd like to f see a president in November, whoever 
might be elected. I follow politics in the United States very closely, although I'm not a very sophisticated consumer of it. But let me tell you, the United States has made in the last 40 or 45 years an incredible step towards the future. If the Republicans win, you have a man who is very respectful, who has merits in the military. It's a good human being. <coughs> I happen to know him. In the Democratic side, it's unprecedented. The possibility of having a non-white president at the White House, a woman or a black American, it's incredible. The message, the message to the world is very powerful. message to the world is very powerful, independently what the results of the election might be. We already <coughs> made an enormous step in showing the world that this is a country that has the levels of tolerance to entertain even an indigenous Peruvian who comes to the United States and become a president of his own country. Now you have the possibility of having a woman or a black American. You know, if I will have to vote, I know that this is being recorded, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> If I will have to vote in the United States, which I don't have the privilege, I'm going to ask Secretary Perry to help me to do that. No, don't do that, because otherwise I can't. I'm cutting my own wins in Peru. If you are about to elect a president, please elect a leader, a visionary. A dreamer, a leader that dreams with their eyes open. Don't vote for a general manager. That you can hire. I stop here. <laughs> that was great. Thank you very much, Dr. Contati. Thank you. Well, oh, thank yes. Would you like no, no, to I, I just wanted to recognize, I, wanted, I want the public to be aware that I have uh, an enormous respect for uh, Minister Cantati. We have done things together. We have signed a free trade agreement in Thailand between Peru and Thailand. We have done government together. So we are not objective about our relationship, which does not preclude that we might disagree in here. 
<laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, since I have flown in today from um, uh, into San Francisco, I think um, uh, I shall uh, stretch my legs and go to the podium and stand for a while so that um, we will continue with the discussion um, sitting down later. But um, I'm so happy to um, be here at Stanford, and especially today um, with President Toledo. Uh, when when um, uh, I was in the government of Thailand, actually it was about five, more than five years ago, um, I decided that Thailand had to find new friends um, in Latin America. And the country that was on top of my list was the Republic of Peru. And I was so happy to be able to work closely with President Toledo um, in bridging uh, two countries that could not be further apart in this world geographically. And together, we have done so much. And we have found that Peru and Thailand share a lot of similar cultural things, in, including products um, in our villages are similar to products in, um, in Peru. So there is a link. And, and um, I certainly feel that Peru is Asian. Um, in a, a true sense, in a deep sense. And the free trade agreement that you have mentioned. I um, was so glad to be able to initiate that together with the president and then um, to sign. Uh, it's near completion. We signed um, a, an agreement which was about 90% done in um, Korea when we both attended the APEC um, conference. And one thing that President Toledo said to me years ago when I was in Lima was that Thailand must have an embassy in Peru. And um, I worked hard. And now I'm glad to report that it's true. we both have our embassies in our capitals now. And the link is now firm and we look forward to um, working closely together. When, when I heard the um, title of our talk today, I remembered, of course, that I have um, talked on behalf of Thailand. I've talked on behalf of my family. But I haven't had an experience in talking on behalf of the world. <laughs> That's quite formidable for me. So I, I feel that maybe tonight um, I would have to qualify that to, and to say that mm -hmm. I'm talking to you as a foreigner, as um, a former foreign minister, but more importantly, in my very, very private capacity. And so I will try to be uh, candid with you. I think it is important for the future president of the United States to listen to the views of foreigners, because it's important um, for the president to try to see things 
from the psychology of other, other um, leaders around the world. The U.S. has so many friends around the world. And uh, I think the U.S. president has to be very mindful of that fact, which means um, don't forget some of your friends. The president had mentioned the fact that sometimes the focus becomes a bit narrow. Don't forget the U.S. is a global power. And um, you have to look and interact with your friends uh, as time permits. When I was growing up, um, I thought of the U.S. as a role model for countries around the world. I had confidence and trust in the U.S. I, I studied with Americans. In fact, um, I studied with Americans in the United States as well as in Germany and in England. I think what stood out most about the United States is how the U.S. stood for justice under the law. I always believed that these were key elements in the power of the United States. I have always been allergic to statements like, you are with us or you are against us. I would strongly urge that the new U.S. president never use such statements. The world is not black and white. The world is full of colors and shades. The U.S. must be sensitive to the entire spectrum. Don't compress the international system into a simplistic black and white or good and evil picture. The practice of preemptive use of force is so scary for me. And scary in many ways. It is highly dependent on subjective interpretation and subjective analysis of situations, especially in the prediction of what another state might do in the future. It could also be used as easy justification for one country to attack another. Just imagine what kind of a world we would be living in today if countries are allowed to attack one another in such a manner. The new U.S. president should rely more on diplomacy, multilateral diplomacy, multilateral mechanisms like the United Nations. Don't forget that the U.S. was instrumental in creating the United Nations in San Francisco, actually. And so I would like to see the U.S. play an active role in helping us reform the United Nations to make the U.N fit into our new world. And of course, when you act together with the UN, together with the international com community, you have legitimacy. People around the world are beginning to equate the US with preemption and unilateralism. 
Many now, unfortunately, see the U.S. as a leading threat to international peace and security. The new U.S. president must change this image. Like my American friends, um, I am a firm believer in democracy. However, the use of force to impose democracy contradicts the very <laughs> essence of democracy. The new U.S. president should also be careful of the assumption that people around the world, when given a chance to vote, would vote for the candidates that are pro-American. In many instances, you, can, you can't have it both ways. You just can't expect democracy to have a predetermined result. So, um, yeah, look at Hamas, for example, in Palestine. When I traveled around the world, I would often hear people saying over and over, over again, the U.S. likes to dictate. The U.S. never listens. The U.S. is not sensitive to local conditions or situations. The U.S. likes to impose a one-size-fits-all solution to problems around the world. The new U.S. president should prove these widespread assumptions wrong. Under globalization, we are faced with new and old threats to our security. International terrorism, the warming and polluted planet, human security problems, public health problems. These are all challenges in our world of globalization. Many American friends around the world want to work with the United States to meet these challenges together. After 9-11, the world agreed with the U.S. that the smoking guns all pointed to bin Laden, al-Qaeda, Afghanistan. But then the invasion of Iraq took place. Since this is not a forum to um, discuss the pros and cons of the invasion of Iraq, the only thing I would like to mention here um, just as a lesson from the past for the new president is that up until the invasion, the US, the U.S. diplomacy coupled with the credible threat of force, the buildup of um, forces in the Persian Gulf, <coughs> actually worked and the U.S. was winning. In fact, the votes in the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives to give President the president, the authority to go to war in Iraq. Back in October 2002, do not have to be seen as a pro-war vote. Those votes could be seen as votes to convince Saddam Hussein to allow full UN inspection of WMD throughout Iraq. I agree with um, House Minority Leader Richard Gephardt when he um, said that, to quote, giving Bush the authority to attack Iraq could divert war by demonstrating that the United States is willing to confront Saddam over his obligations to the United Nations. However, 
the decision to actually go to war before the UN inspectors had a chance to finish the job changed everything. I hope that the next president will allow diplomacy to work before the actual use of force. On Iraq, the US invasion has destroyed the delicate balance of power that existed within Iraq and in the region. Iran, for example, ha had been put in check by Iraq up until the US invasion. Now the worms are all out of the camps. And I, for one, can't imagine a quick solution. It is important to get all countries and all parties concerned to be involved in the political negotiations. The conflicts in Iraq must not be allowed to destabilize the region at large. And um, the withdrawal of US troops must be done in a responsible way. This may include the introduction of the UN or another form of international um, operation to replace the US. I hope that the um, negative tones that we have been hearing regarding free trade agreements mm. um, during the presidential debates will not become US trade policy. I feel that um, free trade agreements should be judged in a as a comprehensive package. Free and fair trade under globalization should remain our steadfast goal. I would like to see the new US president reaffirm the support for free and fair trade within the WTO context, as well as the regional and bilateral FTAs. The US wants to include commitments to high labor and environmental standards as parts of the free trade agreements. If this is related to genuine human security concerns and not just another form of non-tariff barriers, it would be the right thing to do. On this note, the new US president should also protect the rights mm -hmm. of the poor people around the world to have access to affordable medicines in cases of life-threatening diseases. In fact, the global fight against contagious diseases um, such as HIV AIDS, malaria, and the avian influenza should receive more support from the US. I agree with the determination to ensure that all states, especially Iran, North Korea, to comply with the nuclear non-proliferation um, treaty, the NPT. We should also be mindful, though, that Article 6 of the NPT legally requires that um, countries with nuclear weapons work towards uh, this armament. We have not heard much reference to this part of the NPT lately from Washington. US leadership on nuclear disarmament would be highly consistent with the NPT and would be substantial uh, contribution to international peace and security. A first significant step the new US president could do in 2009 is to seek the Senate's approval for the US to ratify the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. This treaty already has been ratified by 144 countries.
in the fight against international terrorism, the U.S. president must avoid falling into the trap of playing the terrorist game. The U.S. must avoid taking actions that would multiply anger and thus make it easier for terrorists to recruit more terrorists. The new U.S. president needs a policy to win the hearts and minds of people around the world. Don't give the impression that the U.S. is fighting Muslims. It should be clear to everyone that the U.S. is against extremists and terrorists who are using religion as a justification for violence. The U.S. should encourage an enhanced role of moderate Muslims against terrorism. The priority of the new U.S. president should be to regain the moral authority of the U.S. in the world. This means building partnerships and alliances, cultural and soft diplomacy, soft diplomacy should be emphasized, including, of course, the uh, increase in exchange of students. The recent visit of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra to North Korea was a great success. Uh, talking about North Korea, I, I visited North Korea a few times and they shared with me certain perceptions of the U.S. We can discuss that later if there is an interest. Um, the U.S. must not forget that your friends around the world need to have your attention sometimes and friendships must be cultivated ASEAN, for example, this Association of Southeast Asian Nations, a group of 10 countries, are all friends of the U.S. But let me give you some short, concrete example. ASEAN foreign ministers invited Secretary Rice to attend our annual ministerial conference as well as the ASEAN Regional Forum. In the past three years, the U.S. Secretary of State has missed two conferences. Um, in fact, um, when she missed the first one, I had a chance to meet with her and I explained to her why she needed to be there. And she listened and she said to me right then and there that she would attend the next conference. It was a promise a year in advance and she kept her promise. And that did a lot to um, enhance our relations with the U.S. But I heard from my colleagues that last year she didn't attend again. And so um, uh, my colleagues were saying that uh, we miss the U.S. Secretary of State. But if the U.S. Secretary of State ha has a habit of not coming, then we would eventually no longer miss the U.S. Secretary of State. And that is not going to be good for ASEAN or the U.S. So I hope that would be on the agenda of the new um, U.S. administration. And ASEAN-U.S. summit should also be on the agenda. When I visited the Gulf states, um, I was told by foreign ministers in the region that they were so upset by the fact that the U.S. did not consult them regarding Iran. And I, I, I had an opportunity to mention that to um, Secretary Rice, and I was happy to see that the U.S. Um, President Bush had um, visited these countries recently. So that's, that's a very good sign. Um, 
Well, finally, the, um, the question that came up about whether the U.S. president should meet leaders of um, rogue states. And I think that it's not wise to decide in advance or declare in advance whether the president would or would not meet because meeting um, another head of state or another head of government should be part of the negotiations. And um, one should leave that to the <coughs> process of negotiations. The, um, well, this brings to um, another interesting point about the fact that I mentioned the axis of evil. Um, rogue states. It is so important to stop name calling in my, uh, mm. in international relations. I think when you call someone names, it <laughs> would make it so much harder to negotiate. So I hope that um, um, the U.S. Would, would refrain from calling um, countries um, names. And on that note, talking about foreigners coming to the U.S. too, I hope that the new U.S. president will improve the reputation of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection <coughs> officers at airports. I have heard so many complaints um, from around the world. And finally, the next U.S. president should make it a point to visit ASEAN countries during the first part of the first term of his or her administration. And to end, um, this is a special year because it marks in fact, last week marked the 175th anniversary of the relations between Thailand and the United States. So Thailand is one of America's long-standing friends, and we hope to um, enhance that relationship further into the future. Thank you. We've heard two uh, excellent presentations, which I think call us back to be our better selves. I am not a particularly partisan person. I've voted for Democrats. I voted for Republicans as president. Uh, and I guess uh, I didn't hear anything uh, from either speaker with which I would disagree. It's <laughs> all highly useful advice. And one hopes whoever gets elected will pay heed. It seems to me we were asked by Jefferson to display a decent respect for the opinions of mankind, and in this case, mankind, represented by two distinguished gentlemen on the stage, is telling us to do things I think would be good for America. So I, I welcome the advice. I also recall from service in government that the first year of a new administration is often a kind of confusing year, and it's it's a difficult year uh, to make predictions about because on the one hand there's tremendous pressure to act uh, since promises have been made, things have been put on hold, new people come in, they've got a lot of bright ideas, uh, new presidents tend to be held to the standard of what can you do in the first hundred days uh, since great presidents have done a lot in the early days. And yet uh, in Washington it's ju not just the top echelon that's changing, thousands of new officials are coming on board, and it takes a long time to get them confirmed. And so the, the moment when 
the pressure is on for quick action is a moment when administrations aren't necessarily well equipped to take deliberate action because they're trying to get their team in place and trying to establish their priorities and trying to get their relations with Congress set and trying to get the ducks in a row. So aside from all the good advice, I'm wondering if you think of one or two initiatives that a new president could take to set the kind of tone that I think you have expressed you wish to see, and I think most Americans would wish to see, in a, in a concrete way, early on, things that could be done uh, even before the whole, whole administration is, is uh, in place and well-oiled for action. What are the most urgent things that need to be done to signal the kind of changes that you have suggested? I admit that um, I have a strong bias and I don't ask forgiveness to anyone for my bias. This old issue of poverty has a lot to do with the future of the world in terms of business, in terms of incorporating excluded people into this global world, independently of the color of our skins, independently of our religion preferences, or political preferences. So, each time that we find for books, computers, or pencils, we find guns. If we put some numbers to the money that we have, the United States have spent in wars, maybe those 2.6 billion men and women that today are trying to survive with less than $2 a day, maybe they will be free from ignorance, from not having access to a good quality of health, care, and education. So it's my bias. It's 2.6 billion men and women. And poverty has the face of a woman and a child. I'm not touching any individual issue. My friend Kantati has talked about Iraq. I would, I would like to see a president that puts more emphasis of incorporating. The business of inclusion is very profitable. That's number one. Number two, I'd like to see a president of the United States who has the courage to pull China and both together signs the Kyoto Protocol about global warming. <laughs> I'd like to see uh, a president that designs a foreign policy that anticipates the fires before it comes out. I'd like to see a president who, from the beginning, 
puts a special emphasis, and I said that as a former head of the state, on creating a world knowledge that gradually substitute the world of natural resources to a point that we can be liberated from the dictatorship of oil and that we can have an alternative sources of energy. And I don't mean necessarily by planted sugar canes of corn, because that has some other implications. But I'm sure that together we have the capacity, the knowledge and the technology to create an alternative sources of energy that will eliminate the high political risk of the dictatorship of oil, and also that contaminate less, and it's less costly. I'd like to talk to a president that we relate independently of the size of the country or the power of the country, that we relate as a human beings equally. I don't like anyone, no matter how tall it is, to look <laughs> me down. And I'm short. <laughs> I think that the there is an incredible opportunity to, to look at the future. That we can confront the challenges of the world together. Global warming does not have frontiers. Thank God we still have the Amazons that is one of the few lands of the world. Global warming does not create the frontiers that produces wars. Clean water has to do not only with global warming, it has to do with poverty. Because children who drink water that are not drinkable, they get sick. They don't go to school. If they don't go to school, we are reproducing poverty from generation to generation, and therefore they are not free. So you ask, I'd like to ask the next president, what democracy are we talking about? At least from my perspective, I'd like the democracy that delivers concrete results, decent jobs, access to quality of health and education, and a sense that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I'd like to talk to a president, if I have a chance again, to see that we can do this together. Because the United Nations, and my friend Kandati has touched the issue. I'm sure it requires an institutional re-engineering. But let's do it. But for the time being, 
This is what we have. And this is what this is our world charter. And we need to respect that. We cannot jump an agreement that we have signed together, no matter how powerful that might be. And believe me, I know President Putin. He can jump that. But the President of the United States cannot give itself the luxury to do that. So my last point and to you question is, I'm sure that the levels of economic growth of China and now India is going to continue generating demands for mineral grains and energy. Consequently, we should not expect in the short run a substantial decrease in the price of the barrel of oil. And that has a negative impact on the countries who are not oil producers, and worse yet, if they are poor. So the urgency to put more emphasis on research to generate that alternative sources of energy, number one, and number two, to create a world that is more knowledge-oriented than dependent on the, the prices of gold, silver, copper, oil, gas on the world, uh, the level of vulnerability are very high. I'm going to uh, the Democratic Convention in Denver in August. I'm not going to confess I, I don't vote over here, but I'm just a Democrat. I've showed it in the, in the streets. I was sharing with Dr. Sheen in his office yesterday that one of the greatest advantages that I had to become elected president without me knowing, thank God, was my lack of experience. So don't be afraid to vote for someone who, for her or for him, who don't have experience. If he has the vision, the leadership, and the capacity to surround with people who know, that have the know-how. The president is the captain of the ship. There are mechanics, there are general managers who can be done if we, and this country has the capacity and the talent, the resources in the universities or public service who can provide a continuity. I'm very hopeful, culturally, culturally hopeful that we might begin in a new era in the United States and therefore in the world. Thank you. Dr. Gandani. Thank you very much. I think, um, well, first of all, President Toledo has um, mentioned key points that I think are very, very important that must be placed on the agenda 
of the, the new president. But I, I would um, go back to what I said earlier about how I saw the U.S. Um, when I was growing up. The U.S. should reset the agenda and go back to how the U.S. was. America was a country that um, uh, was a power for peace, a power for law, power for development, remember um, President Kennedy, Peace Corps. I think the new administration must return to that path, but with additional things on the agenda. But the first thing that I feel is so important is to make sure that um, there is a signal that says to everyone in the world that there is a new change in the U.S. And of course, um, I'm not going to um, uh, be voting, nor am I going to um, say who I would like to win, but someone very different from the present administration would, um, <laughs> would signify that, <laughs> would signify that without even saying anything. And that in itself will um, set the tone. Um, I would go back to... That, that will guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> I would go back to my um, uh, comments about the need to pay attention to your friends. The U.S. has so many friends, but so many friends feel ne neglected, and I think that has to be on the agenda. The president will have to um, use that personal touch to bring back trust and deep friendship the human agenda that President Toledo has mentioned is so important. Um, the U.S. should spend on making this a better planet. The, the environment um, we have mentioned. The fight against diseases should also be um, high on the U.S. agenda. Um, rightly or wrongly, there will be more debates about the cost of medicine. And there will be some people saying that, you know, um, uh, those poor people really need life um, to save their lives by having access to um, medication. And I hope that the U.S. will have a review of that, the policy, and, and to actually look at the um, uh, pharmaceutical companies, um, whether they are actually um, spending a lot of money on research or are they spending more money on advertisement and other marketing techniques? So that has to be revisited. That's a very important matter for the world. International law should be something that the U.S. should um, make sure that it is promoting. The U.S., of course, will um, uh, hopefully not um, uh, be attacking any country that um, is not a direct and immediate threat to the U.S. But most importantly, the U.S. should lead the world in getting um, a world of law, a world of human care, a world of human touch. It's the human element, even the fight against terrorists. If you um, use the human touch and the understanding, I think the, another important aspect that the U.S. president must 
um, convey right away is the willingness to listen, the willingness to reach out, and the willingness to um, work with friends, the willingness to win the hearts and minds. For example, the fight against um, terrorists, one has to look deep into the social issues, into the um, religious schools, for example, um, in the Muslim community. U.S. should work with friends as well as um, not only countries around the world, but different groups um, within countries to, to help set a common agenda and a signal that um, the U.S. is going to rely <coughs> more on the United Nations, more on um, being engaged in um, free and fair trade, more on keeping agreements that have been made intact, not to initiate uh, reviews for reasons that the world may not understand. Above all, I think um, uh, the U.S. should have a human agenda. Uh, I remember in England when I was growing up, at traffic lights, intersections, they, they had a box in the middle and they say, do not enter the box unless the exit is clear. And I think the U.S. should think through everything that the U.S. would do and always think of exit strategies and always stress the importance of prevention. Thank you. Thank you. Let me turn to the audience for a question, Bill. <laughs> Bill, could you wait or I'll just announce that it's Bill Perry who's going to ask this question. We've got microphones that will come around. <coughs> uh, Denise, right down here. Uh, both of our speakers have cited the importance of the new president reaching out to other countries and to the international community. I think that's a marvelous idea, but I'm looking for some specific advice, particularly in the first year. The president cannot make 200 bilateral visits in his first year. How can he leverage himself in doing that? Is it by attending regional meetings like ASEAN? or NATO, UN, is it by sending special envoys to represent him to many different countries? Do you have any advice as to how the President can most effectively, in his first year, send a signal around the world he's really reaching out to other countries? No. Now we're getting a little bit more specific. President, particular president of a country like the United States, cannot be everywhere at one moment. But if the decision is made <coughs> that this is a breaking point, that this is a change and that it's a political will, that maybe choosing particular envoys for Latin America, for Asia, for the uh, Middle East, with the enough empowerment to communicate that this is the will of the president. Not even had to meet with each president of Latin America or each president of Asia. If a 
they have, <coughs> they ask me what once, what do you think we should do? And I suggest that. But if that representative really has the closeness, the knowledge, the empowerment to transmit the message to the leaders of the region or the sub-region, it will begin the first year. It will be begin transmitting a message that this is a breaking point, that we are looking at the future together. Uh, we, I mean, the, the, the world cannot touch the hand of the president, everyone. But someone who knows the region, I think that envoys is one, uh, one concrete example. Secondly, State Department. Sometimes I discovered, and I'm not going to get into any specific, I discovered that the Secretary of State did not know anything that the undersecretary and the ambassador was doing. And some ambassador were not doing very kosher things. I'm referring specifically to the case of Peru. And so, if there is some telephones <coughs> that are connected, maybe uh, we can be much more effective. And uh, we, don't, we don't expect that the, the President of the United States, particularly the first year, will go around the world. There's a lot of things to be done at, at the White House. Uh, but I think the good chosen, <coughs> good chosen ambassadors or envoys, uh, it's, a, it's a good suggestion. That was your idea, I Thank you. Um, in spite of the availability of the internet and all the modern technology, I think um, <laughs> the first thing the new president should do is to use telephone diplomacy. And it's only at maybe three minutes per country to initiate contact by the phone. And then it, it, it would mean so much. And then after that, of course, um, the president should ensure that um, his cabinet members uh, are synchronizing their actions and also work within this new framework of foreign policy. He should try to make sure that um, his cabinet members don't miss ministerial meeting, ministerial meeting meaning certain cabinet rank should be there as the head of the delegation. Those mean a lot. And in the end, it comes to just the management of time because it only takes a few hours or a day for the Secretary of State to be present. And it would mean so much. So the presence is important. Telephone diplomacy <coughs> comes first. The president will not be able to meet all the presidents and heads of um, and prime ministers around the world um, personally, but that outreach 
I think becomes so important, and also to listen um, to um, the views of others and the effective use of television, etc. That goes around the world too, to um, emphasize the new change. I think it also depends occasionally on events. I remember George H.W. Bush took the occasion of Emperor Hirohito's death in February of 1989, I guess, to attend the funeral, which provided the occasion to see a lot of heads of state. Yes. And it was a very convenient way of getting in touch with a lot of people. And he put great story by the personal relations, which made the telephone calls more meaningful. And it seemed to me the other possibility would be if a new president chooses to accord a high priority to the environment, whether it's Kyoto, I'm not sure. I think the Chinese regard Kyoto agreement as a means of restricting their growth. So one may have to look for a different or supplemental way of registering one's concern about the environment. And I wouldn't push for a conference too early on any subject given the problems of getting up and running. But Sometime in the first year after people are in place for a while, convening a conference around a subject which represents a high priority for the new administration could provide the occasion for bringing a lot of heads of government to Washington or some other place. So it would maximize the opportunities for seeing a lot of people on one occasion. There was a question in the back. Yes. Thank you. Um, I think I couldn't agree more with the with the former uh, uh, foreign minister from Thailand that the world is not black and white. That America should understand that uh, globalization is not a micro, uh, Americanization, and uh, democracy in the international relations is also not Americanization. And America should learn to um, to uh, solve and handle international relations and international issues, not only on the same um, uh, measure. But uh, um, could you suggest any um, any point? Uh, how can I? How, how can we um, let American president understand what we are thinking and uh, transfer this pre uh, perception of handling uh, <coughs> international relations, especially the hotspot issues? Thank you. Why don't we pick up two or three other questions, and then we'll you can you can answer the ones that you wish. Yes. <coughs> Hi, um, thank you very much for your talk. I used to work for the United Nations, so I was wondering what you think of the UN reform and if that could facilitate more multilateralism on the side of the US. Are there other questions? Yes, back here. Hi, my name is Mohammed. Um, very honored to hear you speak. Uh, both of you have talked about this um, president who reaches out has a human element, really cares about fighting for poverty, uh, has multilateral agreements. But my question is, which of the three candidates that are running right now would you think is probably the best um, to improve the global image of the US? And as a follow-up on that, or a second question, do you think that the election of a, a non-white person to the White House would make uh, America seem more approachable, given that, for example, Obama's has a half sibling in China, 
or that he grew up in Indonesia or his father's from Africa or that he's Muslim, do you think that would make uh, America's, <laughs> sorry, I mean, yeah, I guess those are my two questions. Okay, good, good question. Okay. <laughs> Let me, uh, before I, I touch that, uh, those two questions, add a footnote to the question of Secretary Perry and that it was addressed by my, my friend Cantat. I, it is absolutely true that personal chemistry could make long ways in implementing things. It is true that strong democratic institutions provide continuity and it's and it's needed, there's no question. You know, I've had met hundreds of head of states, and with some of them you hit it on more than others. So making a phone call or visiting for whatever occasion makes a lot of sense. That's very personal. But we need to put some content to that three minutes phone call over the five minutes conversation. And we need to have some priorities. Where are you at <coughs> with respect to certain issues? That goes beyond, with all due respect, a diplomatic gesture. I mean, content matters. Secondly, I repeat what I said at the beginning. It is an incredible message to see a woman in the White House or black American president that goes around the world meeting all the leaders, it's powerful. It's powerful. Independently of who is elected at least on the democratic side. Third, multilateralism is very important. And I think it has been referred both by both of us. We, this world belongs to us and it's in dangers. And this creature we have to take care of by all of us, and no one has under the sleeve the real truth. And we need to be humble to consult each other, to have an opinion before we make a decision. FSI, Stanford, and I'm sure all the universities in the United States have a very capable persons. If the leader knows where he wants to take the world as a leader, consultant with the rest of, of leaders of the world, then he can surround with very capable people. And I know, for example, here there are people who are well-trained. And finally, I want to touch the issue that Ambassador 
mentioned at the beginning, migration. Now, when you go to San Francisco <coughs> or you go to New York, you cross the street and you, s you heard enormous numbers of languages being spoken. That's what the United States, Vietnamese, Chinese, Latins, People come from this, to this country for different reasons. There was one historical reason, uh, the war in Vietnam. All the people are trying to find a new horizon and take a risk. If you're dealing with your neighbors, it, this is my personal opinion, you can build the tallest wall in the world, the thickest wall in the world, and believe me, you will not stop people from coming to the United States because that's not the issue. If entrepreneurs, Latin Americans, Mexicans, or multinational corporations will pay a decent wage and generate jobs there where they invest, people will not take the risk of losing their life on the frontier. So if we build the walls, it's going to separate us more. It is, it is losing uh, the point. <coughs> hopefully, hopefully, and now I'm talking about Latin America. The next president will take a look, at least looked at South for a while, or for a moment, with an envoys, and I have the hunch that's coming. Thank you. Um, there is a sacred principle called the principle of non-interference in the internal affairs of a sovereign state. So as um, a foreigner, it's a bit hard to, to answer directly the question that was placed before us, especially. It was an analytical question. Yes. Um, <laughs> I will try to do that without, without um, violating that principle. But the principle is becoming more flexible, um, as, as we have seen in the international system. But what I would say would be that uh, uh, if it's Obama, <coughs> then it signifies a clear change, it seems. Um, if it's Hillary, then it also signifies a degree of change. It's not as clear as, um, as the first one. Um, McCain would signify something that no one really is sure yet. Some people think that it might be signifying a continuation of the um, present situation. And some may, um, may be wondering. But the clearest change, of course, is, um, is the first one. I hope I didn't violate the, the principle. Very involved. clever. <laughs> uh, um, and of course, the colorful uh, 
being, um, being able to um, work with the world and go with the global agenda, which of course will help U.S. agenda in the end, um, is the signal that I think um, a forum like this is an important forum to um, convey certain messages to the new president. Um, advisors who are in the universities now, I think it's important for the new president to pick the best to be in his team or her team. Um, but forums like this, the newspapers, and then the willingness to interact and meet with certain groups, not only the president, but he can delegate. And it could be anyone that he delegates, even within the bureaucracy. But something that signals the new administration feels that it's important to see things through the eyes of others and work with others. Um, the UN reform, complicated. It's, um, I was at the UN many years ago, and um, the same questions are still being asked. But the main thing is that the UN has to be reformed to better serve the world of globalization. You know, questions about the Security Council, new permanent members without the right of veto. How? Well, the dilemma will continue because um, you pick certain new uh, members from different regions. For example, India, Pakistan will wonder why India. You pick Brazil, um, Argentina and others may wonder, Mexico may wonder. You have that dilemma. That's why it's going slowly. But the main thing is um, to, to be actively involved in that and look at the reform of the um, human rights mechanism. The other talk that um, is going to become even more pronounced with, within the UN system is um, the responsibility to protect. And the French foreign minister has just brought that principle up regarding Myanmar. All those things are going to contribute to UN reform. And member states should enable the UN to act in ways that um, would promote the interests of the community, the world community. The UN has legitimacy. The UN must not be compromised by siding with certain groups, but go in, be objective. And um, the reform process, unfortunately, will take a while longer. But let's be active together. And above all, the US should be very active. Thank you. One more question at the back. <clears throat> this will have to be the last. <clears throat> um, first of all, thank you very much for talking to us today. I have a question, and I think it's probably a little bit more regarding different regions in the world. Um, as you say, the new president of the United States has to actually improve the relationship it has with different countries and regions. I'm mostly concerned about the Latin American region and um, the relationship Latin America has had with the U.S. during the current administration hasn't been the best, and there has been a strong switch or swift towards the left that has always been accompanied by a very anti-imperialist or anti-U.S. rhetoric. Um, my question would be, what recommendations would you have for the future U.S. president to, in order to recuperate this relationship with Latin America? Thank you. I know that we have a very short time, 
Tabi Each forum that I go around the world, people ask me, President, what's happening in Latin America? Is it going left again? I have too much respect for the left of Latin America to believe that the Hugo Chavez are, are left. <laughs> the noises that we are seeing in Venezuela and Bolivia in Ecuador or Nicaragua are noises that produce it to a large extent because of the price of oil, but really they are not the causes of the problem. They are the symptoms. They are the consequence. The consequence of our inability of 500 years in Latin America have not been able to reduce the high levels of poverty and inequality. And so they are trying to capitalize, confronting the issue of poverty by giving fish away instead of giving people the right to learn how to fish. So one way of confronting that is now that we are growing economically six consecutive years and the price of commodity in the international market are high. Now we have the money to invest and convert in the region more into a knowledge region. And so the Uwachavis are not really the consequence of the, are not the cause of the problem, but rather the <coughs> consequence of my view. They need to be dealt with. <coughs> Second issue very quickly is free trade agreement. I have worked day and night for many, many months to conclude the free trade agreement between Peru and the United States. For political reasons inside the United States, I, I was not able to conclude it, but I left it 95% concluded. But free trade agreement makes sense only if it don't not only benefits to the big corporation, local or foreign multinational corporations, but if they are if they are not articulated with medium, small, and micro entrepreneurship, then we might be widening the gap between those who have and have not. And my final point, if you allow me. I lost my mind sometime when I was at Harvard or in, in Tokyo. And I made the mistake to make the jump from academia to politics. But now I'm here relearning and trying to recuperate my intelligence, but I think it's too late. <laughs> <coughs> what I'm asking leading to your question that what could we do now looking at the future? Academic institutions in, in the United States produce very sophisticated research, powerful, in a different disciplines, great minds. 
but most of the publications and the books end up in the library, which, is, which is, has a reason itself. That's academia. I cannot renegade where I'm coming from. But you know what? You could, you could have an incredible impact. If you can leave for a moment your coefficients in your house and write an executive summary of two pages as a result of your sophisticated research, and that executive summary provide to your president two hours, two pages, two pages. The same is true for all, all the, the leaders in the world. If you can convert the results of your research into some policy recommendations, you perhaps will improve tremendously the quality of the president's decision. Having said that, I have to admit that it takes two to tango. That presupposes that the president is willing to read those two pages executive summary and consider it as an input in the decision-making process. I don't know how many executive summaries President Bush have made, have read before he made the decision. But I think it's valid for all the, the head of the states, particularly in this country where has such a powerful minds that somehow, and that's why institutions such as Hoover, such as FSI, that are more policy-oriented plays such a critical role. And let me congratulate them, therefore, in organizing this event and by putting together Asia Pacific together. And I like to thank you very much and congratulate for organizing this event. Thanks a lot in my part. Thank you. <laughs> I thank, I thank, I thank Dr. Toledo, Dr. Cantati. Very practical advice you've given, and I think very important. I think what we tend to forget is when the president comes, takes office, he in the first place has got to deal with domestic problems, the economy, health care, the things that really Americans are concerned about most of all. And therefore, listening to your appeal that he not forget the importance of addressing these issues is very timely. And I hope you'll continue to convey the message to others, and we thank you for your participation in this event tonight. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you all for coming. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.